You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back to The Corbett Report, ladies and gentlemen. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned in to Questions for Corbett, the monthly podcast series where you ask the questions and I provide the answers. This is edition 30 of the QFC podcast for the month of June 2016, and if you're watching the video version of this, you're lucky enough not only to see my beautiful smiling face, but also my comfy chair for a change. So I hope I don't lean back and get too comfortable, but uh, I am nice and comfortable for this conversation. And that's a good thing because we have a lot of comments and questions to go through as usual. And as always, if you do want to get your questions in for this series, there are many ways to do so. Of course, you can contact me through the contact form on CorbettReport.com, where you can also leave a message via the SpeakPipe application that can play audio. So uh, you can leave an audio question. Uh, You can hit me up by Twitter using the QFC hashtag, And or you can upload a video question to YouTube or Vimeo or any other video sharing site and let me know that it's there so that I can play it on the next edition of this series. And of course, probably the number one way is for Corbett Report members to log on to CorbettReport.com and leave your question in the comment section of this edition of QFC and we'll go through it next time. So, looking back at QFC number 29, the questions and comments that were there, I note that there was a very lively conversation that was going on in the comments there uh, amongst the Corbett Report members about A, C.S. Lewis and the various books of his that I apparently should read, and B, uh, the authorship question when it comes to William Shakespeare. There was a lot more interest in those topics than I would have thought, so... Interesting. Good to know. I'm pleasantly surprised, and I will obviously definitely be pursuing that uh, more in the future. So thank you for that lively discussion. Let's turn to the first question, this one from Corporate Report member Fantasy of Nothing, who writes, There are reports that could be used to support the idea that the U.S. and its allies support ISIS. There are also reports that say that the U.S. is attacking ISIS. If you don't think the U.S. is attacking ISIS, why treat the information from some reports different than others? How do you decide what reports to believe without fa- falling into confirmation bias? If you do think the U.S. and its allies are attacking ISIS, why would they simultaneously support and attack them? All right, some good questions here. Thank you for providing them. I think a lot of people probably have these questions when they first start encountering alternative information about how geopolitics really works. And this gets into the 3D chess type of maneuvers that I've talked about before. But let's break this down as simply as possible that we can in the few minutes here. Uh, First, on the issue of ISIS and who is funding and supporting ISIS, I will direct you back to episode 295 of the Corporate Report podcast, Who is Really Behind ISIS, where we did talk in some detail about the creation of ISIS and uh, who's actually supporting and funding it. Um, so I think that's the important background here to understand that there is Western and NATO and GCC support for ISIS. That's extremely important. Um, not only the creation of ISIS directly, but also the, the surrounding context which allowed it to arise. But I think it's also important to not make this cartoonish. It isn't, speaking of fantasy of nothing, it isn't Fantasia. It isn't Mickey Mouse going around and magically making, you know, ISIS uh, fighters come to life out of the sand of the desert or something and directing them as some sort of magical zombie army. Um, it is, obviously, there are Islamic state fighters who genuinely believe in the cause of an Islamic state. Uh, it's always a question of how these groups are 
funded, how they are controlled by the leadership, uh, who the leadership really is, and w- how they're supplied and um, where they're getting their money and, money and funds and all of the, the space that a group like this would need to operate. Those are the pertinent questions, more so than, I mean, is every single person being directly controlled by the U.S.? And then what does that even mean, the U.S.? As if there is a singular entity known as the U.S. that does things. No, it's different elements within different agencies that are parts of the government and some of them outside of the government, and of course cooperating with other allies in the region, not necessarily other governments in the region. It could be uh, the intelligence agencies of different governments. So there's layer upon layer upon layer of interaction going on here. And the bigger point of all of this is that, generally speaking, if we look at the history of the Middle East uh, for the past century, uh, starting with the British and then carrying on with the U.S., and with Israel, of course, always uh, an ally uh, to, to the side there, there is always, always the creation of various groups, or at least the fostering of certain groups or certain ideologies, um, that can then be uh, amenable to cooperation or uh, to to using them to play off against someone else. So I think ISIS has to be seen in that context. It also has to be seen uh, in uh, cooperation or in consolidation with the other groups that are also fighting with the Syrian government that are not ISIS, including the Al-Nusra Front, which is Al-Qaeda um, for all intents and purposes, and which the U.S. is actively supporting and funding and coddling, uh, as we saw recently with the revelation that uh, Russia has said, yes, the U.S. has asked us to stop bombing al-Nusra because, oh, we're also hitting the moderate rebels that are on the side of the U.S. So there is a whole smorgasbord of players involved in Syria, and they all have their own pieces of what they want to get out of it. But it to, So to make it into a singular thing is quite too simplistic. All of that is to say that ultimately, at the end of the day, this is about the U.S. Uh, allowing a group like ISIS uh, to form up, and in some cases actively encouraging that, including through smuggling gun- guns through Benghazi um, and, and fighters in uh, through various corridors into Syria that started or at least helped to bring about the creation of ISIS, as admitted by the former director of the DIA, let us not forget that he said that ISIS was a willful co- creation of the White House. And that is then the excuse for further input and further... Uh, Further, a further excuse to go into um, the country and to say, well, we can't have this situation. Look, Assad can't control the country, so we have to go and make sure that we get rid of him. Um, it's a complicated situation. But yes, in a way, yes, I'm sure they do strategic tactical strikes here and there on, um, on, on ISIS targets. But clearly, they're not destroying the infrastructure and shutting down the supply lines and the Jablus uh, corridor and all of the, the areas that they would need to to actually stranglehold them. So, uh, because, of course, there are the moderate rebels that they want to help out. It is a schmazel. I understand why it's confusing. But again, please do go back to who is really behind ISIS and some of the other work that we've done there um, to start unwinding that. But yes, um, a long story short, they put Islamic terrorists in various pieces of the chessboard as the excuse to then go in and take over that part of the chessboard. That's what we saw in Libya. Uh, that's what we're seeing in Syria. Um, we've seen it happen time and time again over the past century. All right. Um, 
there's more to be said on that, but I think that's the best way I can articulate it in this short time. Okay, next we're going to go to a audio question that again was left by the SpeakPipe application on the contact form of CorbettReport.com. This is a question in from Dreadcat. Hi James, here Dreadcat. I would like to add a questions for questions for Corbett. Um, would it be too far-fetched to assume that Gladio is the successor of SOE, Special Operations Executive, which, as they say, merged into MI6? Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much for the question, Dreadcat. And I hope that we're all on the same page and we all understand what Operation Gladio is is about and what it is. But if not, never fear. Of course, there's a podcast episode in the archive with all the answers to your questions. Uh, I have an episode going way back talking about uh, Operation Gladio and uh, paper-clipped Nazis. But more recently, back in episode 256, we did Gladio Revisited. So that might have some pertinent information about the context of what Operation Gladio is and or was and why it was important. Um, and then, of course, there's Gladio B, the ongoing continuing operation, which uh, obviously I did the Gladio B interview series with Sibel Edmonds on, which is, I think, probably some of my most important work. So if you haven't checked that out, please go to the show notes for this episode of QFC and check it out. But specifically on this question, is Gladio the successor of SOE, which merged into MI6? The answer is yes. And for more detail on the answer, we can go to uh, the seminal work by Daniel Ganser, NATO's Secret Armies, Operation Gladio, and Terrorism in Western Europe, namely page 40, where he writes, In July 1940, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill ordered the creation of a secret army under the label SOE to set Europe ablaze by assisting resistance movements and carrying out subversive operations in enemy-held territory. SOE was placed under the command of labor war, uh, the Labour Ministry of Economic Warfare under Hugh Dalton. After German forces had occupied France and seemed unstoppable, Minister Dalton insisted that a secret war had to be fought against the German forces in occupied territories. This democratic international must use many different methods, including industrial and military sabotage, labor agitation and strikes, continuous propaganda, terrorist acts against traitors and German leaders, boycotts and riots. In total secrecy, a resistance network had thus to be installed by daredevils of the British military and intelligence establishment. What is needed is a new organization to coordinate, inspire, control, and assist the nationals of the oppressed countries who must themselves be the direct participants. We need absolute secrecy, a certain fanatical enthusiasm, willingness to work with people of different nationalities, complete political reliability. Under Minister Dalton, operational command of SOE was given to Major General Sir Colin Gubbins, a small, slight, wiry Highlander with mustache who was later uh, to be influential in the build-up of the British Gladio. The problem and the plan was to encourage and enable the peoples of the occupied countries to harass the German war effort at every possible point by sabotage, subversion, go-slow practices, coup de main raids, etc., Gubbins described the task of SOE and at the same time to build up certain secret forces therein, organized, armed, and trained to take their part only when the final assault began. SOE was a carbon copy of Operation Gladio born in the midst of the Second World War. So that's the short answer to the question, or 
the somewhat short answer. Uh, obviously, the much longer answer is in the full context of NATO's secret armies. Um, that book, which again is the one of the seminal works on Operation Gladio, um, really extremely important with a lot of detailed information about how it came about and where it came from and what it did. So please do turn to that book if you want more information. All right, moving right along, let's get to the next question. We have Camille uh, writing an email. My sister-in-law and her fiancé are both currently stationed in Japan with the U.S. Navy. He's out later this year, but she has a few years yet. My question is, could you point me to a good video or article to show them that a dishonorable discharge would be a positive thing since there is no honor in being the hired thug for dishonorable criminals? A very, uh, very good point, a very astute point there. And I realize this is a very real conversation that must come up for a lot of people who do have relatives and loved ones in the armed forces that, well, would prefer them not to be in the armed forces. So, um, off the top of my head, I know that a couple of conversations on the Tom Woods show um, in recent recent months, recent years, that I would direct your attention to... Um, the first is a conversation with Bill Galvin, the counseling coordinator at the Center on Conscience and War, talking about the process of how you go about applying for conscientious objector status and getting out of the military once you're in there. Um, and then the other is a conversation with two military personnel who actually did file for and eventually received their uh, conscientious objector status. Um, fascinating podcasts, even for people like myself who has no relation to this and no, no, no one that I know where love is in the armed forces. But, I mean, it's it's fascinating stuff, and it's good to hear about the process of how you actually go about doing this, and it can actually be done. So, uh, very interesting stories. I'll put those links in the show notes uh, for you to check out, and uh, for anyone else to whom this applies. Uh, moving on, next question in from Drew. I'm messaging you today in hopes of qu- requesting an episode for you to cover about the event that led up to the attack on Pearl Harbor. I remember reading something along the lines of the U.S. provoking Japan to attack, but I'm not sure if that's right. I also found only one book, I haven't read it yet, even addressing this. What is your take on what provoked Japan to attack the U.S.? Well, yes, thank you. Good question, Drew. Um, that is a very good question. And luckily, you're in luck. I have talked about this a couple of times. Um, there was Corbett Report Radio episode 50, where I talked to Robert Stinnett, who wrote one of the seminal works. If you look at any works questioning um, Pearl Harbor and what really happened there, you're going to run across Robert Stinnett's book. So I do have an interview with Robert Stinnett about Pearl Harbor in Corporate Report Radio number 50, and we did talk about Pearl Harbor in a great degree of detail uh, in Film Literature in the New World Order, episode 21, on Torah, Torah, Torah with uh, James Perloff. And we talked a lot about um, the, the details, the mechanics of how uh, Japan was led into Pearl Harbor, what the, how the attack was provoked, how it was allowed to happen on the U.S. side with British uh, perfidy, perfidy, uh, perfidity. <laughs> Excuse me, folks, it's late at night as I'm recording this, so I might be making words up. Um, but yes, uh, perfidious Albion. Uh, yes, so there's a couple of things in the archives where I do talk about that in some degree of detail. And this is more generally to the point that um, if you are looking for if I have ever covered something like Pearl Harbor in the, in the past, once again, I'll remind you, please use the search bar on the sidebar of the website. Just type in Pearl Harbor and you will find these two episodes as well as anywhere else that I've mentioned or talked about an event like Pearl Harbor. All right, moving along. Next question in from David. 
What do you think of this new study reporting that GMOs are safe? It's been all over the net recently, and I didn't know if you had a chance to look into it. Okay, so he's pointing to a uh, Forbes article called Yes, GMOs are safe, another major study confirms. Um, so let's break down this article. Uh, first of all, this is not a Forbes article in terms of it was being written and published by Forbes. It was just being published by Forbes, but it's a contributor article um, by a contributor named GMO Answers. <laughs> hmm. So first, what is this contributed content that Forbes is using? Uh, I'll, I'll put in a link to pointer.org, which had an article up a few years ago about the Forbes model of contributed content and what it means for journalism. But they point out there that this is something that the innovator of this system calls incentive-based entrepreneurial journalism, where basically there are people who um, work out a deal with the, the publisher or in this case, Forbes.com, that they will write the content and Forbes will publish it. And I don't know the details. Maybe it's different from site to site. Maybe they share revenue, advertising revenue, or whatever it is. But anyway, this is so. This is someone who's kind of writing for Forbes, but it isn't Forbes. So that's interesting in and of itself. But more specifically, who is GMO Answers, who's providing this contributed content to Forbes? Uh, from their own bio on Forbes.com, GMO Answers is an initiative committed to responding to consumers' questions about GMOs and how our food is grown. Its goal is to make information about GMOs in food and agriculture easier to access and understand. Experts donate their time to answer questions in the area of expertise for the website. In their, in their area of expertise for the website. Oh, how nice. GMO Answers is funded by the members of the Council for Biotechnology Information, which includes BASF, Bayer, Dow AgroSciences, DuPont, Monsanto Company, and Syngenta. <laughs> so, so it's a, a consortium of the GMO manufacturers are answering your questions about GMO. Oh, don't worry. We've got the answers. So... Take this article with that grain of salt, but what does the article actually say? Okay, so, for those of you who don't know, this article says, An exhaustive new study by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine found, quote, no substantiated evidence of a difference in risks to human health between current commercially available genetically engineered crops and conventionally bred crops, and no conclusive causal evidence of environmental problems tied to genetically modified crops. These results might come as a surprise to some, but the reality is that today's GE products are the most researched and tested agricultural products in history, and this report builds on a large and growing body of evidence that supports the safety of GMOs. <clears throat> okay, so, uh, beyond the fact that this is literally GM biotech company propaganda, literally funded by the GM companies, uh, is this true well, we have this article from gmwatch.org, How the National Academy of Sciences Misled the Public Over GMO Food Safety. GMO food, safe to eat, say world's leading scientists, ran the headline in the Times in the wake of the publication of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences report on GM crops. In almost all the mainstream media, the story was the same. From Nature World News trumpeting, scientists declare GM food safe, to The Guardian's GM food generally safe for humans. In reality, the part of the report that deals with animal feed uh, studies on GM crops is a subtly treacherous mix. Scattered among some sound statements and useful recommendations 
are a plethora of strategic omissions, gobsmackingly unscientific assertions, wishful thinking, pulled punches, and outright lies. Below, I consider just a few. The report's most outrageous deception is the obliteration of the many findings of harm or risk in animal feeding studies on GM crops. The report says, The research that has been conducted in studies with animals and on chemical composition of GE food reveals no differences that would implicate a higher risk to human health from eating GE foods than from eating their non-GE counterparts. That message was translated by the NAS's press release to, as, uh, as... No substantiated evidence of a difference in risks to health uh, between current commercially available genetically engineered crops and conventionally bred crops. That's where the media got the message that GM crops are safe. It wasn't just dumb or lazy reporting. It came straight from the NAS itself. But both statements are at best misleading and at worst lies, as anyone knows who has seen any of the long list of animal feeding studies showing risks and harms from GM crops. Ill effects in GM-fed animals include liver and kidney damage, uh, change in blood biochemistry, and immune responses. All right, Uh, this goes on. Uh, It's a very lengthy article, but let me jump towards the conclusion where he writes, And the NAS report has worked like a GMO lobbyist's dream prompting parts of the the British media, for instance, to lobby for Europe to unblock GM crop farming on the grounds that the report's eminent authors had blown away claims that GM crops and food cause harm. Perhaps not coincidentally, just two days after the publication of the NAS report, Health Canada announced its approval for human consumption of the world's first commercialized GMO food animal, Aqua Bounty's GM Salmon. As GM foods have apparently been declared safe, Who could possibly object? The NAS report should be treated for what it is, not a scientific analysis, but a political document supporting U.S. economic interests. Now, I'm going to leave it there. As I say, this is a pretty lengthy report, and they go into a lot of explicit detail about the various studies that are talked about in the NAS report and how and why they are wrong precisely. So I do suggest, I do truly recommend that you go and read through that article so that you have a better understanding of this report and where it's coming from. But yes, the long story short, yes, this is a politically motivated document that serves business interests that are, as I've documented in the past, well tied into the uh, the U.S. Uh, Environmental Protection Agency and the Food and Drug Administration and other pertinent places in the government, where which are increasingly populated by this revolving door of biotech uh, uh, officials who come in and work for government and then go out with a golden parachute in Monsanto or you know th- those corporations. So, uh, absolutely, this NAS report is being used for propaganda purposes, and I do suggest you actually look into some of the details of it. Again, links in the show notes. All right, let's move on to the next phase of uh, this. We're going to listen to an audio question again, this one in from Ulf. What, what hit me this last week was a question that just popped up a little bit about Corbyn and Sanders. And I was wondering if you have pondered the same thing. For me, as Sanders is Jewish... And I'm thinking the Zionistic, Zion, yeah, the agenda of the Israeli state. Um, is this also within the game to give false hope to people? 
that's what what I felt like. It's kind of like both Bernie Sanders and Corbyn being pawns in a game to distract people what's actually going on. But yeah, that was only uh, uh, something that popped up in my mind and I wanted to share it with you. Thank you for a really, really great uh, information uh, apparatus you have there. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for the question, Ulf. I think that is the question for 2016, no matter which side of the Atlantic you're on. Maybe even over here in the Asia-Pacific, but certainly um, with Corbyn and Sanders. And if we're talking about outsiders, quote-unquote, of the political establishment, or people who are at least perceived to be outsiders and doing something different, uh, let's throw the Trump train into that mix as well. Are these candidates genuinely something different, or is it just a political distraction that's allowed to, you know, keep the masses happy and make them think that there is something out there? Um, Whereas, you know, again, as I think you're implying there, they don't even have to necessarily be consciously part of the agenda. They're just being allowed to have their play in this 2016 selection cycle in order to create the the feeling that there's something different. And, oh, well, you see, the people do have a voice. Um, That's an interesting, that is an interesting perspective. But, I mean, now that Sanders, as we record this here in June 2016, is not officially out of the race yet, but for all intents and purposes, Hillary is the nominee. Um, She's the selection. Uh, What did Sanders really accomplish in the end? What we have is a significant section of the Democratic base that is very disillusioned with the Democratic Party, does not like Hillary. Um, Some of them might vote for Trump either despite Hillary or because they're more appealed, they, they find his policies more appealing. Um, but a lot of them probably will just be angry and will probably cause some havoc at the DNC. And, um, and yes, I mean, at heading into, into the fall, again, I don't see any way to avoid the type of political violence we've already seen starting to ratchet up. And, um, hmm. So one has to ask the question, maybe is the point of this cycle with these candidates saying these different things that are getting people hopeful and then dashing their hopes, is the point of this to lead us into getting people riled up, getting people angry, getting people more more polarized, more divisive? Now it's not, uh, you know, these are the the candidates and this is the, the spectrum of opinion. Now the spectrum, at least we can start to uh, entertain ideas that are somewhere you know, different on that spectrum. Um, and is that opening up the space for people to get more riled up, to get more at each other's throats? This is the way that I see this playing out. I really do see the political violence ratcheting up from here. And I'm not saying necessarily that this election cycle is going to, you know, devolve into all that civil war in the United States or, or elsewhere, but it's heading in that direction. And I don't see that calming down anytime in the near future. Um, Again, in November, regardless of who wins, do you think the other side is going to be placated and everyone's just going to go back and sulk and, oh, you know, I guess this person won the majority? I mean, do you think Hillary fans will be happy with the Trump presidency? Do you think a Trump fans will be happy with the Hillary presidency? Of course not. There will be political violence that comes out of this, and I just don't know if I see a way out of that right now. And I think this is, again, I've talked about this many, many times in the past, and even in the last few months, quite specifically a few times, I think this is being directed um, to to occur. 
And uh, I've even heard the idea, well, we've had the last eight years of people freaking out about the possible gun control. So we've seen record, literally record gun sales in the United States over the last several years. And now all these guns, all these new gun owners, all this, the, 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 the more people who actually have access to firearms, and now they're being pointed at each other. Yes, don't fight the powers. Fight, the, fight your neighbors. They're your problem. That is not good. And uh, combine that with an economic catastrophe of some sort. I mean, even a Lehman level, let alone Lehman times 100, which is, you know, what's possible given the way the system is, has been inflated since that time. I, I don't know. It's not a, it's not a pleasant thing to think about, but I think we're going to have to start thinking about it. And this is again why it always comes down to what you can do, what you're able to, uh, to, 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 to do in the agoristic sense or with uh, community, building communities around you, because ultimately that's what's going to be there when everything else gets pulled out from under you. So, uh, we're heading into some bad times, and I think that these outside candidates, or however outside they may actually or not uh, actually be, at any rate, I think part of the effect of this is to rile people up and to get them more, ultimately more polarized, more divisive, more at each other's throats. And I don't like where this is heading. Um, all right. Well, on that sad note, let's move on to a related sad note. I have Hank writing in via email. I get mostly all my news from alternative media and links my friends send me. I see a conflicting narrative that seems to indicate doublethink on the part of my fellow skeptics. Are the Muslims about to conquer the West with terrorist attacks? Now my buddies seem to forget that 9-11, 7-7, Sikh temple shootings, etc., etc., etc. were false flags. I know we are all pawns in the game, but they seem to discard hard-won knowledge just to jump on the next bandwagon. Yes, very good observation, Hank. Uh, unfortunately, a very good observation. And certainly, again, something I've noted here in the last several months is that, yeah, okay, yeah, 9-11 and all that, 7-7, yeah, those are all false flags. Definitely, absolutely, you know, inside jobs, intelligence operations, I mean, just no doubt about it. But, but the Muslims are going to get us, so we have to be against them and, you know, go Trump, you know, get, get the Muslims out of the U.S. Uh, yeah, it, it seems like everything that we've been working towards in terms of educating the populace about false flag attacks and how they work and who they're perp really perpetrated by at the end of the day and what their purpose is, is going out the window right now. And it's almost like a flick of a switch. And um, yes, uh, it, look, Truth has never been popular. There was a period for a few years where it started to become more mainstream, but it's now going out the window and people are going to jump on the next bandwagon, which is, again, getting more at each other's throat. It's more about getting at your neighbors who disagree with you than it is about actually seeing the system and seeing the Gladio-style operations, whether it is actually Gladio B that's operating in uh, the U.S. and Europe right now to create these attacks, or whether... This is just a Gladio-style operation, um, but either way, that clearly are being orchestrated and helped along. All of that information is going to go out the window. Uh, the fact that every single terror bust that the FBI has done in the past 15 years has been someone that they themselves helped set up and uh, provocateur. Again, that information is going to be discarded because it's the evil Muslims. And um, again, the Muslim boogeyman is being drawn out. This is the age of the war on terror, and the, the neocons who set, it, set the ball in motion are laughing all the way to the bank, I guess, because people are still swallowing it. Um, so, yes, 
again, what's the answer to this? I, I wish I had a simple answer. I mean, how do we how do we prevent this? I think we just have to keep hammering the truth home. And again, it's never going to be very popular to be a truth teller, but we got to keep doing it. All right, let's move on to a Twitter question. This one in from at CycleSores, uh, who said, uh, I saw this new sign in Salem, Oregon. Do you think this trend may pop up with other goods and services? And for the benefit of those listening to this podcast rather than watching the video version, it's a, it's a sign of a gas station, and it shows differing prices depending whether you're paying cash or whether you're paying debit credit. And interestingly here, it's uh, slightly cheaper if you pay cash rather than if you pay debit credit. That is an interesting phenomenon, because this is clearly the way it can be engineered into a population, whether to use this form of payment or that form of payment. If it's cheaper to use, you know, paper money, then people will use paper money. If it's cheaper to use plastic, people will use plastic. Which is why I think, obviously, differential pricing is going to be used in a lot of different circumstances, is already being used in a lot of circumstances, will be more used, I'm sure, in the future, as differing forms of payment become more more important to the uh, the transactional process. Um, look at any graph of the usage of electronic payment, and um, in every country, it's starting to, to skyrocket. It's going exponential to the point where uh, there are countries now where uh, cash payments are now the minority of transaction payments. The majority are now electronic um, credit, debit, what have you. So uh, we are moving into the electronic age, and that's why uh, there are places that will give you a discount of use cash because then they don't have to pay the card processor fee. So, so you know, they save a little bit of money, so they'll pass that saving on to you. But ultimately, I think this is going to work the other way. Ultimately, I think in most cases, the incentive is going to be, hey, you know, use your card to pay and we'll give you a discount. Or use your card and we'll give you bonus points. That's a, a popular system that they have in a lot of stores here in Japan so that even convenience stores have their own point card and, you know, pay with your card and you'll get points. Um, which is the way of engineering society into accepting the cashless society, which is ultimately where we're heading, which is why I think ultimately that's going to be done. So this is uh, related to that um, that video that I showed in... Uh, I can't remember which episode of the podcast it is, but I'll have the link in the show notes. You are being gamed, where I talked about, uh, there was this presentation where this person was laying out very specifically how governments in the future will engineer their citizens' behavior by offering various point games and incentives and rewards. If you, if you take the bus to work instead of driving, you get points and you can redeem them for whatever tax rebates or whatever it is. That is very much the style of the future, and that's the way I imagine this playing out more so. For individual retailers, yeah, maybe their incentive is to give you a cash discount if you pay with cash. But um, on the societal level, I guarantee you there's going to be increasing incentives to pay with uh, electronic me- means, because that's where, that's where they want to engineer society. Moving on to the next question, again from the comment section of QFC number 29, we had Christian write in, as a huge fan of your work, and especially the FLNWO series, I have a question. Where can I find the early episodes? I understand that you've done episodes about The Insider and Blade Runner, but they are nowhere to be found. Could you please direct me on the right path, or if unavailable, please re-upload them? Uh, no. <laughs> I can't. Uh, no, because the YouTube... Uh, content ID system saw and flagged those videos because it dared to show a little bit of the movie that I was talking about. Fair use comment, of course, but that doesn't exist on a controlled platform like YouTube. So those early iterations of FLNWO have disappeared into the mist of time and never to be seen again. But uh, 
Well, there is the possibility I will redo them in a different, more acceptable form in the future. But that is why the uh, Film Literature and New World Order series is generally available as an audio podcast rather than a video podcast, so that it doesn't get flagged because, oh, I showed a little bit of the movie that we're talking about. Um, so, if you are interested in the Film Literature New World Order series, the best way to do that is to subscribe to the podcast feed. Um, but, it, I, Brock, Brock West, the video editor for CorbettReport.com, is working on making a video version of past episodes of that. So, if you're not subscribed to the Corbett Report Extras YouTube channel, you can do that. So, long story short, no, The Insider and Blade Runner are gone to the mists of time, but, um, maybe we'll talk about them again in the future if there is sufficient interest from people out there, because they are interesting stories. Alright, next, let's move on to Oscar, who writes, uh, Hi James, when are you going to finish the book you're writing on the New World Order? I'm really looking forward to reading it. I am also really looking forward to passing along copies of it to friends. I think giving them a book on this topic instead of just sending them a link would bring more gravitas to it. I agree, Oscar. (laughs) Which is exactly why I wanted to write a book in the first place. And... It's coming. Sure, it's coming. <laughs> I've been saying this for six years now. <laughs> so uh, take it with a hefty grain of salt. But yes, I do want to publish a book. At this point, sitting down and physically putting the... Well, physically on the screen, putting the book together and then actually printing it will be the big part. Because I want to print a physical book for the reason that you say having a physical book does have more gravitas. Plus... Uh, gravitas plus... I've always wanted to publish an actual book. Um, and at at the same time, it's the least censorable, disappearable form of media. Uh, again, the electronic media that we have, if you're getting a Kindle version of a book or something, it's only as good as Amazon allows it to be, and they can take it away if they want, as they did once to an, episode, uh, to an issue of 1984 uh, that they took off the Kindle and removed from everyone's Kindle, even if they purchased the book. They just removed it in a Norwellian feat of censorship. So, I do want to have a physical book, and that's why I'm going to print it and sell it myself. I've looked at different ways of doing this, and I've thought about selling it through Amazon, but I don't want to go through that rigmarole. I don't want to support that company, and I don't want to support their business practices, so I'm going to try selling it myself. But again, all of this I have to do on top of everything I'm doing on the Corbett Report website. So, It'll get here when it gets here, and you'll know about it when it gets here. Don't worry. All right. Uh, Ragadaga writes, In the last QFC, Brock mentioned that you would explain the history of the word okay before recording this episode. Uh, could you share that history with the rest of us? It's one of those things I didn't know that I wanted to know until Brock brought it up. Uh, no. <laughs> Subscribe to the Corbett Report, and you can get the subscriber-only videos, including the, uh, the, the edition you're talking about, which I believe was in a... May. April. May. May. The May subscriber-only video uh, was me talking about the origins of the word okay um, via a book that I was uh, reading at the time. A fascinating little story. And uh, just as a hint, it has to do with newspapers and elections, but I'll leave it there. If you're interested, subscribe to uh, the website, and you can get the access to log into the website to leave your comments in the comment section and to get the subscriber newsletter, which includes my International Forecaster editorial, which, of course, is also always available for free at theinternationalforecaster.com, and the subscriber-only video, which is, comes out once a month. All right, uh, let's do... Uh, oh, sorry, yes, one more question uh, on that related note from the YouTube version of this last edition of QFC, uh, Ghostface Killer. Uh, wrote, I'm a long-time subscriber. Why did I stop getting the newsletter and videos? My email never changed. 
for those of you who don't know, it's been about a year and a half now, but about a year and a half ago, I stopped sending out the subscriber newsletter as an email, and it's now available on the website itself. Um, I'll put the link in the show notes in case you've never seen it, but there is the archive of the last year and a half of subscriber emails. So when you subscribe, you'll be able to read through all last the last, uh, whatever it is, 50 editions of the subscriber newsletter or however many that year and a half is. Uh, they're all there. Uh, all the backlog, um, at least in, since the beginning of Gen- uh, 2015. So you have to sign into the website. When you subscribe to the uh, to the website, you should get an email from me with your sign-in details for the website. Please let me know if you don't have those sign-in details. If you are a subscriber, if you have subscribed to the website and you have not received your sign-in details, please let me know, and I'm happy to help sort that out with you so you can log in and read the newsletter. All right, now let's turn to this uh, final segment of the podcast where I turn the tables around and present some questions that I received that I want to ask you because I think they're good questions and I want your take on them as well. Um, (coughs) We'll start with what a state who left this question in the previous, uh, not in the previous QFC, he left it in uh, the last New World Next Week with James Evan Pilato where we were talking about Brexit. He left this question. As a voluntarist living in the jurisdiction known as Britain, I despise politics and its mechanisms, but my current thinking is that I should vote to leave Europe as it apparently means uninstalling some corrupt politicians from having a say over my life. Or should I even bother? Or maybe I should spoil my paper. What do other anarchists think? Yes, this is a very good question, and I did respond in that comment thread, but I will repeat the question here on Questions for Corbett as a question for you guys out there. I am interested also in hearing the take of various, well, anarchists generally, voluntarists specifically. What do you guys think on this type of vote? Uh, Not a vote for candidate A or B, um, taken as some sort of package that's going to represent you and, you know, oh, he's going to promise doing this or that and then get into office and do the exact opposite or whatever. But no, a vote specifically on a yes or no about a specific policy issue. Uh, As I said in the comment section, that's the only kind of vote that I can even theoretically get excited about if I trusted that it would be an actual fair voting process, which I don't. So (laughs) that might, that might be part of my answer. And then there's other things to think about when we, when we think about Brexit. Um, For example, If the UK does leave Europe, then clearly that's going to have economic consequences, not just on Britain, but on Europe, that will theoretically, could destabilize the the global economy. Um, And more importantly, the, the, the type of psychological mechanism that will be used either to prevent Britain from voting for Brexit because, hey, look what you guys are going to do to the world economy. Or if it happens and it actually does go through, then they could come around and say, look, you guys caused the death of the world economy. That's why we need more regional governments and globalism. That was the answer. You guys chose the wrong answer. But then again, we can double think that double think because, well, do we want to start then deciding what we want to do based on the way that they're going to spin the propaganda that results from it? So many questions here. Again, I'm going to turn it over to you guys. I'll just point out um, there was a recent Tom Woods uh, podcast where it was Tom and Michael Malice debating the question of voting in general, and that whole debate is interesting and relevant, but I think specifically around the 28-minute mark, if I remember right, uh, there was a discussion specifically about Brexit and that type of vote. So that might be part of an answer to that question. Um, next question for you guys out there. I got a question from Brian. Not sure you would answer this question, but in case you have an opinion, which country do you think has the least terrible government? (laughs) 
I, I do get this question a lot, and I get a lot of people asking me if Japan is a good place to live or, you know, what country should I move to kind of thing. This is a question I get a lot. I think we've even answered it here on QFC maybe a couple of times in the past, but I will put it into the mix again for you guys out there. Do you think there is a least terrible government, a place that people should move to, and why? I don't think I could answer this uh, question affirmatively, because A, I've only lived in three countries in my life, so, I mean, I've only lived in three countries. I've been to a number of countries, but visiting a place and living there is completely different. And I couldn't recommend Japan, per se. Um, It works for me, but there are a million things that go into that about me personally and my who I am and my tastes that I don't know if that would apply in your situation. So it's a difficult question to answer, but if people out there have their opinions, please share them with the rest of us. I'm sure we'd be all interested to hear about it. And finally, we have an interesting question in from Rob. After an argument with a friend about the role of the U.S. military, I tried to do a search on the Kiloton to Freedom Index to see how many kilotons of explosives it takes to make a country as free as the U.S. Apparently, this does not exist. I looked at economic freedom indexes, but Hong Kong was at the top of the list and Liberland wasn't even on the list. I looked at Reporters Without Borders Freedom of the Press Index, but Canadian reporters must be okay with not, with not writing hate speech. Is nobody actually trying to do this, or am I just looking in the wrong places? What metric would you use to measure freedom worldwide? An interesting question, Rob. I like this question, because <laughs> clearly there's no kiloton to freedoms in, uh, index. Imagine that. Uh, we don't know how many kilotons of bombs it takes to make a country free, but the U.S. is working on it with its allies. Uh, yes, clearly the freedom of the press index and uh, the economic freedom index are heavily politically biased and loaded indices that may or may not tell us anything about the country and what it's like to actually live there. So, Again, I mean, I guess this is related to Brian's question, but how do you measure the freedom of a country? And what would that metric look like? What kind of index could you come up with? Or does one actually exist? Maybe you can point it out to us and we can all be enlightened. So those are a couple of questions I'm going to turn over to you guys. Um, have at it in the comment section. And, of course, bring me your questions for the next edition of this, uh, QFC edition 31 coming up next month. Um, Again, there's always too many questions to possibly go through them all, so I do appreciate them all. I do try to go through as many as I can uh, in each edition, and if I don't get to yours specifically, don't take it personally. Um, If you think it's a good question, resubmit it again next time. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the QFC podcast, and well, this is James Corb to CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again next time. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com slash support.